Now will you turn with me please to the book of Daniel. That's in the Old Testament. Or as Dr. Kaiser would say, the Old Testament. That's the part of our Bibles that uh, crack when we open them. The uh, pictures of our grandchildren fall out. And the flowers that we've been pressing. It's, uh, you may have difficulty finding Daniel. If you can find Isaiah, the next book is Jeremiah, then the smaller book of Lamentations, and then Ezekiel and Daniel. It's in the part of our uh, Old Testaments that we call the prophetic books. It's interesting that in the Jewish Bible, it's not in the section that they designate the prophets. It's in the writings, which contains uh, the books of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Ruth, uh, some of the smaller books in the Bible. Daniel is in that, in that collection. The reason being, though Daniel is a prophet, clearly a prophet, has prophetic sanction, he, he predicts the future. The Jews looked at him primarily as a statesman. Uh, he was someone placed in a strategic location in the city of Babylon and was there for a particular purpose. And uh, when we approach the book, we need to look for, that, for that, uh, that significant thing that Daniel did while he's there. It gives us a clue, I think, for interpreting and, and understanding the book. The book of Daniel is probably the most maligned book in the Old Testament. Uh, the reason being, if Daniel is what it's purported to be, that is a, a, a 7th century B.C. writing, then the critics of the Bible have a real problem because the book contains real predictions, very precise, pinpoint predictions. Daniel predicts the course of events in the Babylonian Empire. Now, that's not a great problem because he lived throughout the entire period of the, what we call the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He also predicts events that took place in the Persian Empire, which was the empire that uh, succeeded the Babylonians. And that's not a great problem because he lived into the first two years of the, at least two, maybe three years of the, of the Persian Empire. And it's possible that he could have seen certain trends. He was a good prognosticator. He could see something of the direction the empire was going to go. But the real problem comes in that he predicts events that took place in the Greek Empire, which didn't really come into power, at least in the Middle East, until the 4th century B.C., about 332. And then a greater problem is the predicts events that took place in the Roman Empire, which again in the East didn't really come into prominence until the middle of the second century BC. So if Daniel is a seventh century book, if Daniel lived about 605, from a beginning with about 605, that's the period that the book covers from 605 BC to 536, if that's the period of time, when Daniel lived, then those that don't take the Bible seriously have a real problem because he clearly predicts the future. Now, either we take seriously the book of Daniel or we have to late date it, which is what most of the critics opt for. They date the book about 165 B.C., right in the middle of the, of the second century. They say it was a, uh, this is the term they use, a pious fraud. The, it, Daniel didn't really, really write the book, but someone in the second century B.C. wrote the book, assumed the name of Daniel, the purpose of the book is to stir the zealots up to uh, support the Maccabean revolt against, against uh, Syria. That's the purpose for writing it. It was a pious fraud. It had a good purpose, but it was fraudulent. We would say it's a white lie. Uh, now, the, the reasons for saying that 
the book ought to be dated in the second century, they, they believe are scholarly, at least that's what they will say. They're scholar, good scholarly reasons for dating the book in the second century B.C., linguistic, literary, historical reasons. When I was a student at Southern Methodist University, I'm a little reluctant to let that out these days, but uh, uh, that, was, uh, that was my college. And uh, uh, we were required in those days to take a religion course, which was taught by a prof, always, each year is taught by a prof, from Perkins Theological Seminary, which even then was a very liberal uh, school. And uh, the particular prophet I had was a man named Dr. Thomas Peepee. I have never forgotten Dr. Peepee. And when he got to the book of Daniel, he said some things that really startled me. He said, first off, the Bible is full of historical blunders, and Daniel is a good case in point. There are many, many historical blunders in Daniel, the sort of thing that you would expect to happen when someone wrote 500, 400 years later, after, after the fact. He just lets slip some things that indicate that this book is not what it claims to be. For example, he says, the very first, uh, first verse of the book of Daniel contains an error. A flagrant historical error. In the third year, which would be 606 B.C., presumably, since uh, Jehoiakim came to the throne in 609, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And Dr. Peepee said, that's an error. Because Nebuchadnezzar came to the throne, uh, uh, rather, Nebuchadnezzar besieged uh, Jerusalem, in 605 B.C. There's no question about that. They have the historical documents from Babylon as well as Second Kings, which uh, states that it's in the fourth year of Jehoiakim that Nebuchadnezzar conquered uh, or uh, besieged the city of Jerusalem. So you have about a year's slippage there, and that's the sort of thing that you would expect if someone wasn't living during that time. But what they now know, but they didn't know 100 years ago when I was in college, is that is that the Babylonians had a different system of, of dating their kings. They did not start with the first year of their reign, but with the first complete year of their reign. In other words, if using our calendar, if Nebuchadnezzar was, or Jehoiakim rather, was anointed king in March of a certain year, his first regnal year would begin the next January. They wouldn't even count the partial year. Now, Daniel lived in Babylon, so we'd expect him to use the Babylonian uh, system of dating the kings. So Daniel was right on the nose. It was indeed the third year of King Jehoiakim using the Babylonian system, so chalk one up for Daniel. They don't use that argument in, in anymore. Now, in chapter 5, we're told that Belshazzar was the last, uh, last king of Babylon. Dr. Peavy told us this is another mistake. Because all the classical sources at that time said that Belshazzar, they didn't even mention the name Belshazzar, Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. He was the king when Cyrus uh, and, and the, his Persians overran the city of, of Babylon. Now that's what they thought then, but now they know from Babylonian sources that Nabonidus ran afoul of the priests in his day. And he put himself into voluntary exile, moved away from the capital city, and put his son, Belshazzar, whose name appears in the Babylonian documents, on the throne. And, Babylon, and, and Belshazzar was indeed the king in Babylon when the Persians conquered the city. If they'd read the text carefully, they would have seen that. Because when Daniel interpreted the writing, that's the story of the, you know, the handwriting on the wall. When he interpreted the writing, Belshazzar gave him the highest honor he could give him. He made him the third ruler in the kingdom behind Nabonidus and himself, you see. So I chalk another one up for Daniel. He was absolutely right. He was right on the nose. 
Yeah, Dr. Peavy always uh, also said there, there, there are linguistic problems in the book because you have languages that shouldn't be there. A lot of the book is written in Aramaic, which is a language somewhat like Hebrew. It corresponds to Hebrew the way French and Spanish correspond to English. or cognate, they're similar, but if you read one, you can't necessarily read the other. And you have sections of, of the book of Daniel from 2-4 on that are written in Aramaic. And Dr. Peavy said, that's a, that's a grave mistake because Aramaic wasn't in use in the Middle East until the Persian period. But they now know that they were using Aramaic as far back as the 10th century B.C., that it was a language of commerce in Babylon because cuneiform was too hard to write, and it was all over the place. That was, that was the language. That was the lingua franca of, of Babylon. So no one questions anymore that they used Aramaic during that period. A greater problem, Dr. Peavy said, is that you find Greek words in the book of Daniel. Now, that's a problem. Because the Greeks didn't come into power in the Middle East until the 4th century B.C. Here's Daniel, 7th century B.C., 605. Here, here, here are the Greeks in, in, in Babylon, or in Persia, uh, beginning about 332, something like that. So you've got the span of time. Here's the Greek language over here. You can't have Greek spoken before the Greeks got there. Now, that does seem to be an insuperable problem. It would be like uh, someone telling you that out in the Owyhees someplace, there's a, an ancient Shoshone inscription that's dated the 17th century A.D., and uh, you go out to find it, and here's, sure enough, here's an inscription by a Shoshone uh, Indian, uh, Shoshone uh, medicine man, and you begin to read the inscription, you can read Shoshone, and you get to a certain point in the inscription, and there in perfectly good modern English, you find the phrase, Kilroy was here, incorporated right into the inscription. You say, oh, come on, somebody's going to be pulling my leg. See? Now, that's the sort of argument that they put forward in the book of Daniel. You're reading along, and this is the impression given. You're reading along in Aramaic, and suddenly you run into all these, this Greek language that shows up. And obviously, if Greek didn't become the language of the Middle East until the 4th century, we've got a real problem. Well, let me tell you what, what the facts are. You know how many Greek words there are in the book of Daniel? Three. You know what they are? They're the names of musical instruments. The musical instruments that were played on that great day when they were all to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. If you look at chapter 3, uh, I think it's verse 5. I don't have my reading glasses on. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither. That's one Greek word. It's the word from which we get our word Guitar. Lyre, harp, that's the second Greek word. That's the word from which you get our word psalter or psalm. And pipes, that's the word from which we get our English word symphony. Those are the three Greek words. Now, they're repeated in, in the uh, chapter because these instruments are repeated over, and the names of the instruments are repeated over and over again, but it's the same words. They're, Greek, they're instruments, Greek instruments. And uh, any, any sociologist could tell us our anthropologists could tell us that musical instruments and musical terminology is one of the first things to transfer from one culture to another. The Greeks were around in the 7th century B.C. The Greeks didn't come into being in the 4th century. That's just before the golden age of Greece. They were around everywhere. They were mercenaries. They were fighting in Babylon and, and in Persia during this time. You can see some, uh, uh, some Babylonian soldier with his zither seeing a Greek soldier with his guitar and the Babylonian soldier says, what is that thing? And he says, that's a guitar. And he starts to strum a few chords. And the 
Baboon says, hey, I'll swap my zither for your guitar. And that sort of thing went on all over the world. Still goes on today. We have hanging on our wall a uh, dulcimer, which comes from, from Appalachia. And uh, we haven't picked up any other culture from Appalachia, but we have that thing hanging on, on our wall. See, that sort of thing occurs. So there's no problem with, with there being Greek words in the passage. Let me give an illustration of how this works. Suppose the Italians conquered Idaho in 2300 A.D., okay, 300-plus years from now. Um, in 3000 A.D., a group of archaeologists are digging in Boise. They just happen to come here to dig, and there's layer upon layer upon layer of civilization, a thousand years of civilization. Now they're digging down through all of this rubble, and they break through the roof of David and Claudia Melhoff's house. <coughs> and they dig down into the living room, right through their piano bench. And they have found on that layer a number of newspapers dated 1987. So they date that layer right there where the piano bench is at uh, late 20th century, 1987, because they have the newspapers giving the date. But they open up the, the piano bench and they find all these musical scores in there and they take one out and they look at it and, and the words are in English. But at the top, there are notations that say pianissimo, fortissimo, Greek or Latin, or pardon me, Italian words, you see. So they say, oh, no, 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 no. That level could not be late 20th century because the Italians didn't conquer the city of Boise until 2300 A.D., see. Now, that's the kind of reasoning... That, that has led some skeptics and critics of the Bible to discredit the book of Daniel. Now, let me, let me say something. We must never poke fun at people that don't take the Bible seriously. We need to, to love them because God does. And I'm not, nothing that I, that I say, I, you know, I, don't, I don't want you to construe this in any, any way as cynicism or ridicule. But I want to say this. We are often told that there are scholarly reasons for rejecting books like the book of Daniel. There are none. Can I say that again? There are none. The reason why people reject the early date of the book of Daniel is not scholarship. It's philosophy. It's because they have a worldview that will not admit the fact that God knows what's going on in the world and knows what will happen in the future and has revealed that truth to his people. That is the answer, pure and simple. And if you pin them down, that's what they eventually have to say. The reason they have rejected the book of Daniel is not for scholarly reasons, but because they have a worldview that will not admit that God knows the future. It's just that simple. I say that to those of you who are in high school or in going to college next year or those of you that are on the university campus right now, because you need to understand that there are good reasons there are good reasons for believing this book. Now, uh, as Carolyn says, I've gone and gotten historical. And I don't want to stay there any longer. Let's turn to the book of uh, Daniel, verse 1, chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Nebuchadnezzar actually was not the king at this time. 
He became uh, king uh, during the siege of Jerusalem, as best uh, we can tell. Uh, the, the Egyptians and the Assyrians had tried to stop the Babylonians at Carchemish, the city of Carchemish up in Syria. Babylonians overran them and kept right on coming down to Jerusalem. They sacked the city. They, they took all the treasure away from the city of uh, Jerusalem. They stripped the gold and silver from the temple, and they went back to, uh, back to Babylon. But they took with them some members of the royal family. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He, that is Ashpenaz, was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king, assure, uh, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. We can't uh, begin to understand the feelings of these uh, young men. They were torn away from their families and uh, catapulted into another culture, another language, another lifestyle, another set of worldviews. Uh, according to Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, these young men were all members of Zedekiah's family. We're told specifically in the text that they were members of the royal family, which would put them in David's line. So these were the young men that probably would have, uh, some of them would have been on the throne had Judah endured. But they're taken away from Jerusalem, their hometown, and they're taken off into Babylon. And they're exposed to an entirely different culture. They had to learn a new language. They had to learn the languages of, of Babylon, Akkadian, and Aramaic, and the other languages, which explains why Daniel is multi, multilingual. And they had to go through the educational system of the Babylonians. The word that's used for Babylonia here is the word Chaldee, which uh, originally referred to Babylonians in general, but at the time of Nebuchadnezzar referred to the priestly caste. So they were given a religious education. When they studied astronomy, they studied the astrological myths and the stories of the gods. When they studied literature, they read things like the Gilgamesh epic and the things that you probably read when you were in school, the racy escapades of their ungodly Babylonian gods. And uh, when they studied uh, man, they looked at man from the standpoint of the Babylonian worldview, man's origin and his destiny and his, and his purpose. They were exposed to all of this. Their, their education was, uh, was steeped with idolatry, with polytheism, and the, the, the crazy moral ideas of the Babylonians. And they, they tried to naturalize them. They tried to break them totally with their, uh, from their religious background. They gave them new names. Uh, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, every time I read those names, I think of the story of the preacher who never could recall the names. And so he wrote them on the inside of his coat pocket so that when he needed to remember them, he could refer to the card. And he, he, sure enough, he got to this point in the text and forgot their names and thought for a minute and then checked inside. Shad, 
Hart, Schaffner, and Marx. But their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are the names they're known by, interestingly enough. But their original names were God-bearing names. Hebrew God-bearing names. Uh, Daniel's name originally was, uh, was Daniel. God is Judge. That is the God of Israel. His name was changed to, to Belteshazzar. You'll, you'll recognize that Bel is the name of a Babylonian god. That was Nebuchadnezzar's god, Bel Marduk. And uh, Daniel's name is changed from God is judge to Bel will protect you. Uh, Hananiah's name means Yahweh is gracious. Hanan in Hebrew is the word for merciful or gracious. Yahweh, Yahweh is gracious. The Lord is gracious. His name was changed to Shadrach, some, some composite of the name Shad, who was, a, again, a, a Babylonian god. And Mishael, the Hebrew name, means who is like God. Meshach probably means who is this. I picture this little dirty-faced, tear-stained little boy. And these were very small boys, preteen, early teenagers, when they were taken off into Babylon, standing there and being asked his name. What's your name? He says, my name means who is like God. And they name him, who, who is this? Probably to poke fun at, at his former name. And uh, Azariah whose name means Yahweh, helps. His name is changed to Abednego. Abed means servant. Nego or Nebo is the name from which Nebuchadnezzar's name comes, and it's the name of a Babylonian god, Nebo. So the servant of Nebo. So they were given these polytheistic uh, names which conjured up all the stories of the gods and goddesses of, of that era. Now, that those are Daniel's circumstances. Daniel and and his three friends, taken out of his homeland and placed into an entirely different setting, a different culture, a different way of looking at, at reality, separated from his family and from his, his faith. Now, uh, the paragraph that follows describes Daniel's choice. But Daniel resolved, the word means uh, to set one's heart, to make up one's mind. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than, than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables. It's the word for seeds. Uh, uh, oatmeal, wheaties, grape nuts, those sorts of things. Give us nothing but, but seeds, grains to eat, and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So I agreed to this and tested them. Uh, for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier. Uh, my text says, and better nourished, but uh, the Hebrew text just says fatter. They looked healthier and fatter than any of the young men who ate the royal food, which puts the lie to this uh, idea that we have that, that God's blessing means that you're thin. If anything, God's blessing means that you're fatter than anybody else. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. You see, that's where Daniel drew the line. He submitted to the humiliation 
of a new culture, a new educational system, a new name. He was willing to submit to all of that, but he drew the line at the point where he had to draw the line, which was violation of God's will, because the Old Testament made it very clear that there were some foods you could eat and there were some foods you could not eat. And the reason for not eating these foods is not clearly understood. It wasn't that they were high in polyunsaturates or were unhealthful. It had something to do with the way these foods were used in the pagan religions of that day. And uh, God says, you can't eat those foods. You're a holy people. You're a separate people. You're a unique people. You're a different people. You can't eat that stuff. You have to eat this food. And apparently, this the food that was on the king's table, the meat that had not been, you know, the animals hadn't been exsanguinated. The blood was still in the meat. They couldn't eat it. It was taboo to them. And... Uh, it wasn't the wine per se. It was the way it was prepared. There were other meals on the table that were part of the foods forbidden in, in the, what's, what the Jews call the Keshrut system, his whole system, dietary laws that govern their, uh, their eating habits. God had said very clearly, you cannot eat these things. There's a reason for it. Now, all of that is rescinded in the New Testament. As, as we know from Peter's experience, the sheet let down. All sorts of unclean animals in it. God says, don't call unclean when I call clean. So the dietary laws are rescinded in the New Testament. But for Daniel, they were enforced. And that's where he drew the line. He didn't change my name. But I am not going to violate the will of God. Now, notice he did not uh, stamp his foot and throw a mad fit and uh, uh, stand up in, uh, uh, in some kind of rude and arrogant way and challenged them. He did not say, I cannot see how you guys can eat this stuff. It's a bunch of garbage. Uh, he was gracious. He was thoughtful. He tried to uh, be sensitive to those around him. He did not foist his faith on them. He wasn't incensed that they ate these, these foods. He just said, I'm sorry, gentlemen. I cannot do it. He tried to work out some alternative to to keep from causing harm to the people around him. But he was firm in his conviction. Here's a little test. He said, all right, feed me cereals for 10 days and give me a body fat uh, test. And at the end of the 10 days, the steward uh, pinched a couple inches and uh, he said, oh, you have done great. And the steward's head was, was saved. You see, Daniel was sensitive to the scruples and the careers and the heads of, of the people around him. But nevertheless, he was firm. He would not budge. He had made up his mind. He'd made up his mind beforehand because he knew that's what he would be facing. And incidentally, though, I'd never thought about it till I read through this passage again this week. Uh, this meant Daniel never ate anything but vegetables. Not because vegetarianism is something that's commanded in Scripture, but he lived in Babylon his entire life, over 70 years. He couldn't eat their food because it was defiled. So this meant he, he had to eat cereal to the end of his days. So it cost him something. And that's the thing. See, he didn't put the cost on them. He didn't demand that they change the dietary laws in Babylon. He just said, I'm sorry, I cannot do it. And though it is at great cost to me, it might even cost me my life, I am not going to violate the word of God. Now, the, the verses that, uh, with which the chapter concludes describe Daniel's career. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. They were men of learning and letters. They were sophisticated, cultured, highly trained uh, men. Uh, they understood 
the disciplines that they were exposed to. But it says Daniel could also understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Visions and dreams are the means by which God revealed his will to the prophets of that age. There's another way of saying he was a prophet. He received direct revelation from God. So he, had, he, he accepted truth from the secular realm, and there is truth there. And the Bible doesn't contain all the truth. There's truth outside the Bible, so they, he listened and he learned in his classrooms. He took notes, he studied, he read, he was a learned man. But uh, he checked everything out by Scripture. And if anything he learned over here contradicted something that he, that he, that he learned from God, then he didn't believe it, no matter how convincing it was. So he wasn't just a one-dimensional man. He wasn't merely trained in secular thinking. He was trained in the knowledge of the world and in the knowledge of God. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, uh, bring them in that's Daniel and his, and his three friends, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The, ting, the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There must have been other members of the royal family that capitulated. They folded. But uh, Daniel and the others, the three, did not. They didn't compromise. And in the end, they excelled. They exceeded the wisdom of the others. There was none equal. So they entered the king's service, and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the astro- enchanters, it's the word for astrologers, in his whole kingdom. Uh, there's, a, there's a verse in Proverbs that says, because I have your wisdom, I know more than my professors do. It's interesting. I know more than the Ph.D. that teaches me does, because I not only have instruction from him, but I have instruction from God, and I have more sense than my, my other teachers and that was true of Daniel because he, has, he had God's word through which he screened everything else that, that he learned. And then you have at the end what appears to be a throwaway line. Daniel remained there until the first year of Cyrus. It's one of those verses in the Bible that you never memorize, but it's very important. The point that, that Daniel is making is that he outlasted Babylon. He not only outlasted Nebuchadnezzar, he outlasted five and maybe six kings of Babylon and the Babylonian Empire. And when in 539, Cyrus and the Persians invaded the city and Babylon fell, Daniel was still standing. Babylon was the greatest empire in the world. Probably the great, there's certainly nothing before it, probably nothing after it. Quite like, quite like Babylon. And Babylon fell into ruins, and Daniel was still standing tall. Now, it doesn't always happen like that. Jeremiah uh, stood tall, and uh, one of his own countrymen killed him. That's what you get for loyalty, faithfulness. Uh, Ezekiel stood tall over in Babylon, and he was the laughing stock of, uh, of, of the city of Babylon. He was the town clown. You know that if you read through the book. They laughed and ridiculed him. They never did take him seriously. He went to his grave with no one but God really paying any attention to him. So it doesn't always work out like this. But in the case of Daniel, Babylon fell, and Daniel was still standing. Now, what can we make of all of this? Because we don't want to leave it there. Our purpose in studying the Bible is not to learn history and archaeology and, and that sort of thing. It's got to speak to our hearts, not, not to our heads. What does it all mean? Well, let me, let me try a, a, a kind of a crazy idea out on you. May I do this? 
I, I have come to the conclusion that the book of Daniel is a metaphor. It's an allegory. Now, understand what I'm saying. When I say allegory, I don't mean it didn't happen. It happened. Daniel is a real person. He lived in the 7th century. He was a statesman in the Babylonian court. Wouldn't, be, wouldn't surprise me at all if someday they dug up a, some tablet with Daniel's name on it because he was there for a long time throughout the entire period of the exile. He was there. Furthermore, Jesus believed that he was there. Our Lord believed that Daniel was a 7th century prophet and that he wrote the book. So if we question the integrity of the book of Daniel, we are questioning the integrity of our Lord. And if he was wrong about Daniel, he could very well be wrong about other things. And then we are really in trouble. So our Lord believed in Daniel, and I believe in Daniel. So when I say it's an allegory, I want you to understand that. I believe it happened in history. But all the way through the Old Testament, things, that were, things were happening in history that that end up being symbolic in some way. Now, here's what I think is going on. I, Babylon, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, represents the world. The world system. Not the land we walk on, but a way of thinking about life. It's an ideology. We've been talking about this uh, as we've made our way through the book of Revelation in the, in the, in the men's study. Uh, Babylon is a, is a, is a worldview. It's a way of thinking about things. It's this idea that, that man, and I'm thinking generically here, man is the measure of all things. Everything that we need to be what we want to be is found within. Man is the measure of all things. You can call it humanism. You, you, know what, you can give it all kinds of titles, but it's been around since the very beginning. You're God. You don't need God. You're God all by yourself. That's, that's an idea that's found in the world. Now, sometimes it uh, is stated just that baldly. You, you are God. That's what, uh, that's what the serpent said to, to Eve. You can be like God. Sometimes it's stated less bluntly. But the inference is still there that something a man makes with his hands or something that a man or woman says or something that a man or woman puts on uh, is all they need. It's all within you. You don't, you don't need God. That's Babylon. And uh, the philosophy is what I call speak. You hear it all the time. We've talked about it from time to time. It comes at you from every quadrant. Every time you turn on the television set, every time you flip through a magazine, it shows up in X-rated movies, it shows up in Sound of Music, it shows up in uh, Reader's Digest, it shows up in Cosmopolitan, it shows up in Communism, it shows up in the Human potential, uh, Potentiality Movement. It is everywhere. How many of you take Good Housekeeping magazine? Come on, stick your hand up, peep. Okay, good magazine, right? It is, it's a good magazine. Well, I just happen to be looking through uh, good housekeeping. And I came across a very, very interesting advertisement for a new soap. I, at least it's new to me, Basic. Have you heard of Basic? All right, there, there's, a, there's a picture of this very, very attractive young lady on the, on the ad. And the caption reads, Basic. Designed for the single most important part of you, your face. Now you stop and think about that. Designed for the single most important part of you, your face. You know, if I believed that, I would be awfully depressed. <clears throat>
I don't believe that. Thank God it is not our faces. It's our souls. It's our eternal souls. That's the most important part of us. And this idea that your face is the most important part of you is a lie right out of the pit of hell. That is babble speak. That's all it is. And that is what is driving women insane, is that kind of nonsense. Uh, I understand someone came up after the first uh, service and told me that Garrison Keeler on uh, his radio program last Saturday was telling a story about a woman who always loved her hair. Did any of you see that? She loved her hair. And she got to the pearly gates, and she started looking around, and she said, Where are the mirrors? And St. Peter said, We have no mirrors up here. And, and that captures it well, you see. We're preoccupied, uh, preoccupied with our appearance, the outward appearance. God is not. God, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Now, that's truth. The other is a lie. And it's that lie that we're being fed every day of the week. It comes at you from every quarter. And we've got to have something to screen it out. Now, here's Babylon over here. That's the world system. And over here is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of God. Augustine, a long time ago, pointed out there are really only two cities in the world. We may live in Boise, but our real citizenship is in one of these other two towns. We either live in Babylon or we live in Jerusalem. And those of you that know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior are gathered around the Lamb on Mount Zion, as Revelation puts it. You are, you, you live, you, you may be, you know, you're living in Boise temporarily, but your real residence is in heaven. We're seated in heavenly places with Christ. Like Abraham, we're looking for a city that has foundations made by God, not by man. This is not our home. We're just passing through. We're on our way to eternity. That's our real home. So we live in the new Jerusalem, not in Babylon. But we have to work, and we have to go to school, and we have to play in Babylon. Can't stay away from it. And that's why I think Daniel is a metaphor. It's an extended metaphor. It's an allegory. His home was in Jerusalem. His heart was in Jerusalem. But he went to school, and he worked, and he played in Babylon. And he needed something to help him to screen out the guff and the nonsense and the lies that were fed to him all day long. He had teachers that were witty and urbane and sophisticated and clever and bright and highly educated. And they were feeding him a mixture of truth and error. That's what you get in the world. And it's not just all error. It's a mixture of truth and error. That's what makes it so deceptive. And the error, error rarely comes at you in a form that's readily recognized. It's almost, it always just, you know, it's designed to sneak right under your guard and get you. Got to have something to screen it out. What is it? It's the Word of God. It's what Daniel had. And we, like Daniel, need a purpose in our heart that when push comes to shove, we will not violate the Word of God. We can put up with a lot of shame, a lot of humiliation. Uh, we're going we're gonna to catch a lot of grief from the world, a lot of heartache, a lot of struggle, a lot of suffering out there. And there are a lot of things in the world that are enjoyable, a lot of good things to do out there. But we have to have the Word of God to help us separate truth and error. If we don't do that, if we don't stick to this Word, we're going to be galled and deceived and conned, and we're going to find ourselves buying into that system and it's going to destroy us. 
That's all we got to know this book. That's why I'd like to encourage you again to, to get into a small group someplace, into a growth group, or into one of the women's Bible studies or the men's Bible study or some other small group where people are studying the Word for themselves to, to know it and to obey it and to use it as a way of discerning the difference between, between right and wrong. We don't have any option. And then when, when those times come that we have to draw a line, we, we can draw the line. We can say, well, I, you know, I'll put up with this and this and this and this and this because it's not prohibited anywhere in Scripture, but this is and I will not do it. We have to be gracious. We have to be patient with those on the outside. We need to love them. They are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy, as Paul puts it. The servant of God must not strive but be patient with all men gracious, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. We need to see them as people who have been conned by the evil one, and they are to be loved. But nevertheless, we, we just have to be firm. We have to say, I will go thus far and no further. And no matter what it costs me, I'm not going to violate the Word of God. That's what it means to, be a, to dare to be a Daniel. Remember that song we sang as children? Dare to be a Daniel. Just say, whatever it means, whatever it costs me, I will not. I will not, under any circumstances, whatever, violate a clear command of Scripture. Now, if we do, there is grace, there is forgiveness, there is restoration. He puts us back on the, on the path. But, see, we, you know, sitting here in the cold light of the Word, we need to resolve in our hearts that that's what we're going to do. You don't make that decision in the back seat of a car in somebody's apartment or some place where uh, you're overwhelmed by temptation. You make it in the cold light of day and in the cold light of the word. You just say, I will not, under any, any circumstances, whatever, capitulate. This is God's will. This is God's word to me. I don't know what's going to happen to you in this age. You may lose your job. You may lose your life someday. Thousands. Millions of Christians, perhaps, have lost their lives because, like Daniel, they drew a line. They're not going to go any further. Can't promise that everything's going to work out for you in this life. But all I know is that one of these days, this world system is just going to fall down around us. And you're still going to be standing. As we have worked our way through Revelation, I've been struck over and over again by the situation in which these people to whom John was writing found themselves, they were feeling the heat of the Roman Empire. They were dying in the arena. They, the pressure was on. And the word that comes through over and over again is Babylon has fallen. In other words, it's as good as done. The system is finished. And when it's all said and done, Babylon's going to fall down. And you're going to be standing tall. Let me leave you with one, one passage of Scripture. Will you turn with me to 1 John 2? 1 John 2, 15. First John 2, 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, he's not talking about the land we live in. I love Idaho. That's not what he's talking about. 
Don't love the world system. Don't buy into this ideology. Don't center your life on this idea that man is the measure of all things. Don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone keeps on loving the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a, that's a benchmark for us. That's a, that's a place to stop and check. If I love the world with all my heart, if my heart is set on making it big in this world, making a lot of money, being uh, influential, powerful, being known for intellect or for beauty or whatever it is, if that's, if that's the center of my life, then I may not be a Christian. That's what John is saying. Because when Christ comes into our life, he changes our orientation. He makes a heavenly being out of us. We long for heaven and home. We realize this world is not our home. John says if, if, if you love the world, then you, you better take a real good look at where you are spiritually. You may not have the love of the Father in you. Because everything in the world, the cravings of sinful men, the lust of his eyes. Lust here doesn't mean sexual lust. It's just the word for passion. The wants, the yearnings, the longings of the eye. You see something material and you want it. Got to have it. Even if you have to cheat to get there. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and what he does. If we boast in what man does and what man has rather than what God has and what God has done. All this comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now listen to this, will you? And I want to close on this note, verse 17. The world and its passions are passing away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Babylon's going to fall. But you're going to be standing tall. Let's pray. Will you stand, please? Father, we would ask for the courage to, to dare to be a Daniel. This kind of strength is it's not ours. It, can't, it doesn't come from within us. We don't have it. We know it's supernaturally bestowed. And so we, we ask for the courage and for the faith to, to say no to the temptations to sin that assail us, to say no to the ideas that we know are ungodly and, and unbiblical. Make us men and women of the book. Lord, we thank you for this great, this great promise that our destiny is an eternal destiny, that we're not made for this world, but we're made for eternity and for you. Help us to keep that in mind as we make our way through, through the world today, as we live and work and play in this world. Help us to remember that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Keep us from getting depressed when we're not doing well at work or play or school in this world. If we're not approved, if we're not measuring up in terms of, of man's understanding, help us to realize that, that while man looks at the outward appearance, you look at the heart. So give us a heart to serve, a heart for you, a love for you, and a love for your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.